You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verses 31 through 35. Uh, Obviously, we are continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and this evening, we're going to be considering Jesus' true family. Right? Who is Jesus' true family? Now, the family is a special thing, right? That sounds cliche, but it is. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a powerful thing. Uh, and when submitting to God, the family is a, is a beautiful thing. And I recognize not all of us grew up necessarily in good, godly households. That's why I qualify this. When submitting to God, the family can be beautiful. Uh, but when sin enters in, families are often uh, wrecked and, and havoc can be wreaked on them. Uh, but ideally, the, the bond between parents and their children is incredibly strong, right? E- even in bad families, the bond between family and their children, or parents and their children, can be very strong and powerful. Uh, I- ideally, parents love their children, care for them, cherish them, and the children then lovingly, because they want to, because their parents are so good to them, submit to their parents. Uh, The bond between siblings is also beautiful, right? Siblings encourage each other, are are there for each other. They take up for one another, right? You know, the whole stereotypical, I can say it to my sister, but if anyone else says it to my sister, I'm going to fight you, right? And just so you know, my my sister's very much like that, so she may kill someone someday. Um, She's she's crazy, everyone. You should know that. Uh, But the family unit is, is very powerful, Right? You're, you're hard-pressed, except in the most dysfunctional families, to, to find family members who don't feel a strong bond and strong allegiance to their parents and their siblings. Uh, likewise, you'll also always find similar behavioral traits of people who are in the same family, right? Similar postures, right? Like me, whenever I'm listening to someone talk, I do something my grandfather does. I put my hand over my mouth backwards, and listen to what they say. It's something my grandfather does. I put my feet up on stuff like Captain Morgan commercials whenever I'm standing by stuff. It's something my grandfather does. Postures, right? We can inherit those things. Some, some family traits. Uh, voices, right? You pick up the phone. You're not sure if you're talking to your sister or your mother sometimes or your father or your brother. Uh, certain phrases, maybe, within a family. Everyone kind of picks up on the same phrases, some of which you probably shouldn't say in church. But everyone's family sometimes have their own slang, Uh, Body language, right? Your siblings walk like your parents, things like that. They hold hold themselves when they're listening to a conversation like family members. Uh, Mutual interests, right? Similar hobbies. If If your dad was really into cars, you might be really into cars. If your mother was really into music, you might be really into music. Uh, So again, there are some family traits that you see people in the same family share. But again, the family is a powerful thing. Right? There's mutual love, shared characteristics, strong bonds. And it's a special thing that we don't take lightly. Right? And we place a very high value on our families, don't we? That, that is a nearly universal principle. Right? Ideally, we place a very high value on our families. But, but what if I told you that there is a relationship, there is a bond even stronger than that of any earthly family? That sounds crazy to us. Doesn't it? Right? The, 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 the bond of family transcends just about everything else in the world. Just about. But in our text this evening, the Lord Jesus Christ 
is going to teach us about a family and a bond that is greater and more powerful. It's, it's more special and more long-lasting and deep than any earthly family. Right? He, he, he's going to teach us what it means and looks like to be part of his family. What it looks like and means to be a citizen of his kingdom and part of the family of God. And something interesting, Jesus is the only king of a kingdom that brings strangers in and makes them citizens, and not just citizens, but members of his own family. I thought that was a cool thought uh, this past week. But part of the family of God, that he's going to teach us what that looks like. And in our passage this evening, he's going to teach us what the characteristics of his family members are, how deep their bond is to him, the deep love that he has for them, and the special union that they have uh, to one another. Now, now our, I'll, I'll be honest, our text this evening is very simple and very straightforward. That's very short as well, verses 31 through 35. But nevertheless, as always, there is a lot for us here to see and consider and meditate on and apply. So what I've decided to do, and Pastor Steve just confirmed it to me, is I'm actually going to split this sermon into two weeks. I'm going to split this text into two weeks. Um, I put in my notes, I think that's what I'm going to do. Don't hold me to it, but Pastor Steve told me I have to. So hold me to it, I guess. I have to do it. Um, and though there's, there's much to say about our relationship to one another as members of this family and how strong our allegiance is to Jesus and the blessings of being in this family, what I want to focus on this evening is one thing in particular, and that is the characteristics of Jesus' true family. What are the traits of his family? And Jesus tells us point blank that his family is made up of those who do the will of God. That's his family. That's how he describes his family, those who do the will of God. And I pray this evening that God would help us to understand and be challenged and be encouraged and be incited to greater faith, greater repentance, and greater love as we consider the words of our Lord Jesus in this text tonight that we're about to read. So let's go ahead and jump into it, shall we? Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35. And Jesus' mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our most loving and merciful Father, we come before you this evening as ignorant and hard-hearted people, uh, but we ask that by grace you would soften us and give us understanding by your Spirit working through your word. We pray that you would open our minds to receive the scriptures and be changed for the better by your Holy Spirit. Please, Lord, penetrate the deepest parts of our hearts by the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grant us repentance where we need it. Give us encouragement if we're weary. And remind us of the great love that you have for sinners like us. We ask this for Jesus, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, so some context uh, before we get into this. Uh, the, the setting of this text started back in... Chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. You remember I, I looked at it last week a little bit, or rather we looked at it last week. Jesus has just come off of the mountain 
after choosing his 12 apostles, and he goes back to Peter's house where he was staying at Capernaum. And this huge crowd assembles at the house. People have come to be healed by Jesus. Very few are probably there to actually hear him teach. Most have come to be healed. And then Jesus' family comes on the scene in verse 21. And verse 21 tells us, They went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. So as we talked about last week, Jesus' family thinks that he's crazy. And they've come to seize him. And that word there in the Greek means to take him by force. It's the same word that we translate to arrest in some passages. So they've come to take him by force. And then they've probably come in all likelihood to take him back to Nazareth. Right? They, they don't believe in him. As the text just tells us, they, th- they think he's out of his mind. They think he's a madman. So they've come to try and get him to stop doing his ministry. They're convinced that he must be crazy because he's stirring up so much trouble with the Pharisees and is also so consumed with his ministry that he works day in and day out. Verse 20 of chapter 3 tells us they're so busy he wasn't even stopping to eat. Right? But bottom line, his family didn't believe in him. They didn't believe his message. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. They did not believe that he was the Son of God who had come to bring in the kingdom of God and save the people of God from their sins. So what they've done is, not believing, they've come to try and take him home. They've come to try and convince him to stop doing his ministry. Put bluntly, in their unbelief, they've come to try to get Jesus to stop doing the will of God. As he says all the time, I've come to do the will of the one who sent me. I've come to do the will of my father. My food and my drink is to do the will of my father. That's why he has come. And they're trying to get him to stop doing his work of Messiah. So let's go ahead and reread verses 31 and 32. I'm going to do a fairly brief exposition and then really zero in on verse 35 tonight. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. So Jesus' family is outside of Peter's house. And again, the crowd is huge. The house is packed. You can imagine it, right? There are people everywhere, so much so that Jesus' family can't even get into the house. They're on the outside. And that's something to, to bear in mind to hear, think about for next week. His family, in their unbelief, is on the outside of the house, while his disciples, in their belief, are on the inside. There's outsiders and insiders in this kingdom that Jesus brings. But our text says that they sent to him, right? They sent a message through the crowd, one person telling another, right, that Jesus' family's outside and they'd like to have a word with him. But Mark uses an intentional word in verse 31. He says that they called him. They called Jesus. Now, whenever Mark uses the word call in his gospel, it always carries a connotation of authority, right? Jesus, in chapter 3, called his apostles, right? And he made them into the twelve. So Jesus does the calling in the Gospel of Mark. No one else has the authority to do the calling because Jesus is the one with all authority. So what his family is trying to do is they're trying to exercise authority over him. And in that culture back then, that would have been a very normal thing, first century Palestine, Jewish culture. The family exercises authority over its members, right? That makes sense. Especially parents would have the right to exercise authority over their children, even if their children were old and out of the house. So... Again, Jesus' family is trying to exercise authority over him to try to take him away from his ministry. They do not believe in him. They're trying to take him home and inadvertently keep him from doing the will of God. That's the big exclamation point on this. They're trying to keep him from doing God's will. But the message reaches Jesus, and he's made aware that his family is outside and wants to talk to him. So G- and Jesus answers the message. 
But he does it in a way that would shock his hearers back then and honestly probably shocks us as well. Verses 33 and 34. Then he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat, and looking at the, about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. They're here. Now, obviously, Jesus doesn't have amnesia, right? He's not forgotten. Uh, he knows who his mother and his brothers are. What he's doing here is he's making a point. Right? He's making a point here. He, he refuses to step outside and talk to them and instead uses this rude interruption as a teaching moment. So Jesus didn't want or didn't do what his mother asked him to do. Right? He refused to step outside and speak with his family. But what he does is actually he gives a well-deserved rebuke to his family. And actually, in a sense, not that he ever severed ties with his family, but he shows distance between himself and his family because his family does not seek to do the will of God and they don't believe in him. He knows why they've come. He knows they've come to take him away. He knows they want to pull him away from his work of doing the will of God. And though Jesus loves his mother very much, you can see that in John 19, as Jesus is on the cross, he says, Son, behold your mother. He says that to John. Mother, behold your son. He tells John, take care of my mother after I ascend into heaven. Mary, mom, you're, you're going to be taken care of by John. He loves his mother. And as much as he loves his mother, and as obedient as he always was, Jesus never broke the fifth commandment. Whenever it comes time for him to choose between doing the will of his heavenly father or obeying his mother, he will always choose doing the will of God. He will not obey his mother on this. He will not step outside. He will not go home to Nazareth with them. He will not be put off from doing the will of God. So what he says, in effect, is, you guys say my family is outside? Well, who is my family? Well, my real family's in here. This is my family. He claims that his true family's in the house with him, not outside trying to pull him away from doing the will of God. In, in the parallel count in Matthew 12, he motions to those seated at his feet. I like that. He, he, he motions towards them. These ones, these are the ones. Our text says that he looked about at all of them. It's the same, uh, same verb used, I believe, in verse 5 of chapter 3, whenever he looked all the Pharisees in the face, he looked all of his disciples in the face. And you can imagine the joy of a, as a disciple to hear Jesus say, this is my family. One by one, he looks them in the face and says, this is my family. But then Jesus goes on to clarify exactly who is his family. Now remember, not everyone who hears Jesus' teaching or comes to him for healing is a believer. Right? Mark, something you should know about the crowds in Mark, and if you read old Puritan commentaries, they, they get this wrong. As much as I love the Puritans, they just get this wrong. The Puritans like to paint almost everyone in the Bible in a positive light. Mark never paints the crowds in a positive light. Right? It's, they've always come to get something from Jesus, but very rarely does anyone walk away from these crowds actually believing in him. Mark never hardly paints the crowds in a positive light. Right, so not everyone who hears Jesus' teaching and comes to him for healing is a believer. Right? Don't forget Judas is seated around Jesus on that day as well. And this is the same context where the scribes are there accusing Jesus of being possessed by the devil. Right? So not everyone in that room is necessarily doing the will of God. So what Jesus does is he makes it clear who is his true family. In verse 35, he says, For whoever does the will of God, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. So here Jesus makes a declaration that there exists a family superior to the human family. That there are those who Jesus is bound to and united to with bonds tighter than that of flesh and blood. 
that there is a family, a spiritual family, that supersedes his own earthly family. And that family is the family of God, made up exclusively of those who do the will of God. And I'll come back to this thought later on this evening. But in the words of Matthew Henry, not those who only hear it and know it and talk about it, but those who do the will of God. This is the description that Jesus gives for his family. And I know I keep repeating it, but I'm trying to get it in your heads. Those who do the will of God is his family. That's what they're known for. And that brings us to the meat of the sermon this evening. The characteristics of Jesus' true family. As I said in the introduction, every family has certain familial characteristics and traits. So what are the central traits of the family of Jesus Christ? Well, we just read that his family is made up of whoever does the will of God. But what does that mean? What does it mean to do the will of God? If it's to be the mark of Jesus' true family, then we ought to know it. We must know it. Unless we're going to be self-deceived and think that we're in his family when indeed we're not. And as simply as I can say it, to do the will of God means to obey God. I mean, simply, just put a period on the end of that. To do the will of God is to obey God. That's really broad. But I think that that broad category of obeying God can be broken down into three divisions. And that's what I'm going to spend the rest or the most of my time now going through is these three divisions that make up doing the will of God. And I get these. I'm not going to cite uh, a thousand Bible verses to you, but I believe whenever we look at the whole scope of the Word of God, both Old and New Testaments, we see three broad categories summing up the even broader category of doing the will of God. So first, to do the will of God means to come to Christ in faith. It starts here. It starts with that. This is the first principle of doing the will of God is that you come to Christ in faith. To do God's will means to believe in the one whom God has sent into the world to save his people. The primary problem with Jesus' earthly family is that they didn't believe in him, right? Again, they thought he was crazy, so they rejected him as Savior, and they rejected him as Lord, and they rejected him as Son of God and Messiah, But faith in Christ is the first thing in doing the will of God. And everything else, these other two things we're going to talk about, are going to flow from the principle of faith in Jesus. To do the will of God means to believe in Christ. It's to trust in him, to believe his words, to trust in his work, and to believe his promises. God God sent his son into the world so that he might save sinners and we might be saved through faith in him. So all over the New Testament, we see the constant command of God that all people everywhere believe in Jesus Christ whom God has sent. Right? We see Jesus in John chapter 6. The people ask him, what must we be doing to be doing the works of God? And Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom God has sent. So that's where it starts. Jesus says, you believe in me. This is how you do the will of God. But what does it mean to believe in Jesus? This is all going to be rehearsal for most of you. But God help us if we ever grow weary of hearing these same truths. It means that we throw ourselves upon the mercy of God found in Christ. And I wonder how often we actually view faith as that. As I throw myself upon Christ in utter dependence of him. In utter dependence on him. 
We must come to an overwhelming sense of our sinfulness and great need of a Savior. We must come to an awareness that we deserve to be cast into hell under the wrath of God for eternity for all of our disobedience and our rebellion against God. As we recited the Ten Commandments earlier, that was on purpose. No one here has kept those commandments. It's the summary of the law of God in those Ten Commandments. We come to an awareness that I've broken those laws and I deserve to be punished by God forever. But then we look to Christ to meet our need of a Savior and to save us from our sins. We must believe. This is going to be a rehearsal on what we confess. We must believe that Jesus was the sinless, spotless, perfect man. Perfectly obedient to God in every way. That he was without sin and perfectly righteous. And we must believe that in pure love and pure grace and pure mercy, undeserved from us, that Jesus, though deserving no wrath from God, took our sins upon himself and paid for them in our place. We must believe that on the cross, Christ suffered the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins, and he did it in our room instead. We must believe that on our behalf, Christ fully satisfied the wrath of God that we deserve We must believe that Jesus was then raised from the dead on the third day to prove his deity, to prove that he's God, to prove his innocence from sin, and to prove that our sins have been paid for by his blood. We must believe that he is the one and only God-man, truly God and yet truly man, as as Pastor Stephen prayed, the only mediator between God and man. We must believe that he is our only hope of salvation because, as Peter tells us in Acts, there is no other name given by God by which we can be saved. We must believe that he alone is our hope for salvation. Hear me. That we cannot save ourselves. That by no obedience to God or obedience to the law can we merit eternal life or forgiveness of sins. Because we're too sinful. We've already broken the covenant of works. We broke it in Adam. And we've already broken it in ourselves. By our own actions. There's no obedience that we can render to God. We cannot save ourselves. And then believing, we cast ourselves upon the mercy of God found in Jesus. And we believe his promise. His promise of eternal life and the forgiveness of sins of all who look to him. We believe his promise to give us his perfect obedience by God to be judged by We look to him alone as our righteousness, not our works, but Christ alone as our righteousness. We look to him alone as the atonement for our sins, not anything that we can offer to God. We look to Christ alone for forgiveness and new life, and then by God's grace, because he is faithful to his covenant and faithful to his promises, we receive the promised salvation through Jesus by faith alone in Christ alone. It is the will of God that we look to his Son alone as our source of righteousness, forgiveness, and salvation. Faith in Jesus is to be the supreme mark of the family of God, that we would rest in him alone, that we would trust in him alone. As the hymn says, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. If a person does not believe in Christ as I've just described, then they are not part of his family. 
No matter how righteous their works may seem to other human beings, no matter the high things they may say about Jesus' teaching and that he was a great moral man, no matter what they may say or how they might live, if a person does not believe in Christ as I've described to you this evening, they are not part of his family. Those who do the will of God are his family, and it is God's will that we believe in his Son. This is the first principle of our religion. We trust in Christ. But not only that, to do the will of God means to be marked by obedience to God. Not only in faith, not only do we obey God in what we must believe, but also in our practice, also in how we live. Not only in that we trust in Christ, but that we submit to God's will for how we are to live as he has revealed it in his word. Now some of you might say, that sounds a bit legalistic. And I mean this as gently as I possibly can. That's on you. Because Jesus himself here says, without reservation, that it is those who do the will of God who are his family. And God wills that his people do more than believe. Amen? He wills that we do more than believe. That's not to say that our justification comes by our doing. I'm going to make that clear here in a little bit. But if you read the word of God, he does not only command that his people believe. But he commands that his people also obey him. He wills that we obey him. And we know that God wills us to obey his commands because he commands his people, he commands his family to obey him. And what do we know? He commands what he wills, does he not? It makes no sense for God to issue a commandment that he does not will us to obey. He commands what he wills. In fact, the Bible and theology is what we call the revealed will of God. We don't know what his secret will is. We don't know what what he's foreordained to happen in all of our lives. But what do we do? We don't live by his secret will. We live by his revealed will, his word that he's given to us. In fact, if I could push this further about our obedience, our obedience in relation to faith is the fruit of our faith. Right? Obedience to the commands of God naturally flow from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I know this is review for most of you guys, but we need to hear this stuff again. But it flows from Christ because through faith in Christ, our hearts are transformed by his love, are they not? As we, really, as we really truly believe and come more and more to a greater confidence that Christ has lived and died and was raised on our behalf to save unworthy sinners, rebellious sinners like us, our hearts are then naturally melted towards him and we cry out to God. And what do we cry? I love you. Is this not the cry of the Christian to the God who's saved them by grace alone through Christ alone? I love you, God. Now how might I serve you? How might I now please you? How might I show my gratitude for such a great and undeserved salvation that you've given to me by the works of your Son? That's what the the saved heart cries out to God. And our God does not leave us silent. He responds with, keep my commandments. As the Lord Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 15. Obedience to the commandments of God flow from faith in Christ. And I can say that because Jesus says the one who has been forgiven much loves much. Loves who? 
loves the one who has forgiven them. And as God says through Christ, if you love me, keep my commandments. The heart that loves God wants to obey him. God changes our desires through Christ. And now the theme of the believer becomes this, and please hear me on this. The theme of the believer becomes, I want to do the will of God. I want to keep his law. Like King David said in Psalm 119 verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. As David, as David read to us in Psalm 19 earlier, the law of the Lord is precious, more than fine gold. It's sweeter than the honeycomb. This is the posture of the regenerate person, of the believer, of the saved person, the family member of Jesus. Says, oh, how I love your law, and I'm always meditating on it. I want to rigorously obey God's law, not to save myself. Christ has done that, but in gratitude and love to God. In love for God, the family member of Christ lays himself down before the commandments of God, and he submits, and he dies to himself whenever he finds his flesh not wanting to submit to God. He dies to himself. And why? Because he wants to please the God who has saved him. Now, I want to be clear in case I've not been clear in my preaching in the past. This does not mean that it is our obedience that makes us part of Jesus' family. That's not what this is saying. It is not by our works that we earn a place in the family. Does it work that way in any family? No, it doesn't. You're born into this family, just like you were born into your earthly family, except in this family you were born again into this family. And that new birth is given how? Monergistically, one person working. God working on you to bring you from death to life. We call that regeneration. And to give you the gift of faith. And then in response to that, you trust in Christ and are adopted by the blood of Christ into the family of God. You don't work your way into this family. You don't earn a seat at the Lord's table. You're born again into this family. Obeying God does not originate or begin our relationship with God and our entrance into the family. Faith alone in Christ alone does that. But obedience is the sign of our belonging to the family. This is how you can identify one of Jesus' family members. I want to be clear, Jesus does not give us an if-then statement in here. Read verse 35 carefully again. It is not an if-then statement. He does not say, if you do the will of God, then you will become a member of my family. That's not what he says. Jesus here, rather, instead of that, is describing his family. He says, my family, he says to this effect, obviously, he doesn't say this literally. My family is made up of those who do God's will. That's how you can characterize them. That's how you know who is in my family. They do the will of God. All that is to say, obedience to God is not the root of our being in the family. It is the fruit of our being in the family. Right? There's your cheesy Baptist rhyme scheme. It's not the root, it's the fruit. But it must nevertheless be present if we are actually in the family. If it's not there, then our profession of faith is false. That's the reality of what Jesus is telling us here. But thirdly, to do the will of God is to repent 
when you realize you've not been doing the will of God. Funny how that works, isn't it? And how do we know that? Look in both Testaments. God is constantly calling his own people to repent. Constantly calling his own people to repent. You look at the lives of the saints in both Testaments. They are constantly repenting. It is God's will that we be a people of repentance. There's actually in some countries, like in the Ukraine, for example, they call Christians the repenters. Because God is constantly calling his own covenant people to repentance. So be encouraged, Christian, before we go any further. And we'll come back to this a couple more times. Jesus is not talking here about a perfect obedience to the will of God. If that were the case, then all of the New Testament commandments to Christians to repent don't make any sense. If it's only those who perfectly obey God are actually Christians then it makes no sense why the New Testament would call Christians to repentance. We, and we, not only that, but we know that from passages like Romans 7, that it is the normal experience of the Christian to fight sin and fail sometimes and then have to repent. We sin every day. Don't fall prey to the lie that I was told when I was 12, that a real Christian doesn't sin every day. That's bogus. Christians sin but Christians are constantly repenting. Jesus commands his own family to repent even. Remember the late, late, late last year, we looked at the seven letters to the seven churches? I do believe it was all but two churches. Jesus tells his own family members, his own Christians, repent, repent. The apostles themselves and their letters are constantly calling Christians to repentance and greater faith and greater obedience to Christ. So again, it is the will of God that his people be a repenting people when we realize we've sinned. And to repent is not just to be sorry. To repent is not just to be sad over your sin, although that is part of it. Repentance is not just to feel guilty because you've sinned. To repent is to forsake your sin. I think in my own life I can say this, and I know I'm not the only sinner in the room. In my own life, I think that I've offered up cheap repentance from time to time. Amen? I feel bad, I say I'm sorry, and it stops there. That's not repentance according to the Bible. The Hebrew word for repentance means to turn, actually to return, as in God saying, return to me. Repent. Return to me. The Greek word means to change your mind. It's to acquire a new way of thinking. And what do we know? Our thinking changes our behavior. Repentance is to forsake your sin. To really, truly hate it. Not just be... This is one thing the Catholics get right in confession. God, I'm sorry for having offended thee. But not because I fear your punishment. But because I have offended you. It's to hate your sin because you know it offends your father. To repent is to endeavor to live before God in a holy manner. To strive to cast off your sins and pursue Christ's likeness. To repent is to be grieved by your sin. To agree with God that you've, that you've broken his commandments. To ask forgiveness based on the merits of Christ. Not your own merits. But to beg forgiveness based on the merits of Christ forsake the sinful path that you've fallen on and then get back onto the path of God's righteousness. 
To do the will of God is to be a person who repents when they sin. So to sum it up, this is what it means to do the will of God. If I could broadly talk about everything I think that we see in the Bible, it is to believe on Christ, the first principle. To obey the commandments of God from a changed heart that now loves God and wants to honor him and to repent when you sin. Anything less than that is not doing the will of God. To do one part and neglect the two, or to do two and neglect the third, is to not do the will of God. And only those who do the will of God are part of his family. Listen, we are fools if we think that we can neglect any part of his will and claim to be in his family. Jesus does not give us that option here. Nowhere in the Bible are we taught the doctrine of easy believism. That you just pray a prayer, because I know a lot of us have heard this. You just pray a prayer, and then you've got your ticket to heaven punched, and you just do whatever you want from then. The Bible does not teach that. Christ himself here tells us how his family can be described. How the saved person can be described. How the saints of God are described. They are those who do the will of God. This must be our trajectory if our claim to be in the family of Jesus is true. And I say trajectory, let me illustrate this. I'm not asking you if someone followed you around with a camera and took snapshots of your life if they would think you were a Christian. Because I can testify just this past week, if you'd have taken a snapshot of my life at different times, you would say, there's no way that guy's a Christian. But if someone followed you around with a camera, like a camcorder, because I'm from 1997 and don't know what to call it now. (laughs) But if someone followed you around and videoed you, would they say, oh, this is someone who believes in Christ, obeys God, and repents? We're not talking about snapshots. We're talking about the trajectory of someone's life. Doing the will of God must be the trajectory of our life if our claim to being in Jesus' family is true. A trajectory of doing the will of God. Joel Beakey put it this way, the Christian renounces his own will and submits to the will of God. Jesus' family are a people constantly renouncing their own wills and their own desires when they see them conflicting with the will of God as revealed in the word of God. This is a sobering thought, isn't it? It has been for me. This is a sobering thought. It is a challenging and searching statement from Jesus that his family does the will of God. It makes us question ourselves. It makes us be introspective. It makes us ask questions like this. Do I want to do the will of God? Or let me put it to this, if you're especially weak and weary right now. Do I want to want to do the will of God? I think we've all been there at some point. I don't really want to, but I wish that I wanted to. That's, that's the heart. That's a regenerate person. The, the greatest desire of your heart is to do the will of God. Th- th- this passage makes us ask the question, what is my desire? Do I ever renounce my own will? Am I constantly striving after my own will? Or do I really seek to do the will of God? What is my disposition to the commandments of God? What is my disposition to God? Where is my heart? Now all of that, all of this is not to say that we are saved by our doing. 
Like I said, I'm going to repeat this a few different times. I want to be clear. That's heresy. To say that you're saved by your doing. Only Christ can save us. And we receive his salvation, not by our doing, but by trusting in him alone. But nevertheless, once a person is converted and born again, the hallmark of the true believer is that they want to do the will of God. Even if they fail miserably all the time, they try. They want to honor God. That's the, that's the deepest yearning of their heart. They want to be free from sin. You ever had that feeling, Christian? Not that we're suicidal, but man, I can't wait till I die because I will not sin anymore. Every Christian feels some, something resembling that. Maybe not that morbid. I can't wait till I'm free from sin. The Christian wants to honor God. True believers endeavor to live a life before God. And increasingly our lives become more and more controlled by the will of God as revealed in his word. But again, I have to say this. We are complete and utter fools. If we think that we belong to Jesus' family, if we think that we're saved, if we think that we're on our way to heaven... And yet we do not do the will of God. It's a lie straight from the mouth of the devil that you can care nothing about the will of God and live impenitently and live in opposition to his will and word and dwell gladly in your sin and live like the world and at the same time be in a right relationship with Christ and at the same time be, in, be a member of his family. It's a lie from the devil. And I want to caution you, if I've just described you with that last sentence, then you should know that you have no part with Christ. You've been deceived. And you must turn from your sin and turn to Christ in faith and repentance or you will perish. Please hear me. Many churches throughout the land are full of false converts. Many churches are full of false converts. Many churches in our town, not far from where you sit right now, are filled to bursting with goats who have convinced themselves that they are sheep. With pastors in the churches who also work to convince them that they are sheep. Many churches are full of people who profess to be a family member of Jesus Christ, but have no right to make such a profession. And they have no right to that profession because they don't believe in Him. And they prove they don't believe in Him because they care nothing for the law of God or repentance from sin. The faith they profess is just words. And as James says in James chapter 2, that faith is worthless and dead. They have no evidence of doing the will of God. They have no evidence of biblical repentance. So their faith is false. And their assurance of salvation that they have, oh, I'm on my way to heaven. It's unwarranted and honestly, it's damning. Many people are going to hell and all the while they are convinced that they are Christians. Brothers and sisters, may that not be said of us. I want to take a minute and level with you as a pastor. I know that I preach hard. I know that. I know that I preach the law of God without compromise. I know that I preach that obedience to God is not an option. I preach sermons that step on people's toes from time to time. I know that I preach sermons that make, some, that make people uncomfortable. I know that I preach sermons that may make someone question from time to time whether or not they're a Christian. 
And before I go further, I want to apologize if I've ever made anyone think that their salvation depended upon their obedience. I don't think that I have, but if I ever have, I sincerely apologize. Our salvation is dependent upon Christ alone. But I preach this stuff so hard, and I preach it in a way to make you be introspective and examine yourselves because I love you. I mean that. It's because I love you. I know that we're a small church, and I know, as I'm looking out, I know almost every one of you very well. Not all of you, but almost all of you very well. I don't doubt any of your professions of faith right now. I don't. But small churches can still have false converts. And even the most diligent pastor can be deceived. In some churches, there are pastors who are actually the ones doing the deceiving. But at the end of the day, I don't want, I don't want your blood on my hands. If there are unconverted people among us, I want them to be sufficiently warned and called to repentance and faith in Christ. I don't want anyone in this church to ever have the option or luxury of being self-deceived about whether or not they're Christians. Honestly, that is why I preach the way that I do. Because I want us to measure ourselves according to the word of God. Because I want us to heed the warnings of Christ. Because I want us all to take seriously the words of Jesus here. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. That's an exclusive statement. This is my family and none else. I want you to take this seriously. And it's not those who only hear it, know it, and talk about it. There are many, a great theologian, who are going to go to hell. It's those who do the will of God. Jesus said what he meant, and he meant what he said, and we can't ignore this. We have to measure ourselves against it, and we must ask ourselves, do I do the will of God? Because that is the hallmark of genuine faith. It is the evidence that we've been born again. And without that evidence, you and I have no right to the assurance of salvation, but rather we should fear and repent. So Christian, Paul tells you in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you be in the faith. And if we have an unconverted person with us, or a false convert, and you're just now realizing you're a false convert. Repent and trust in Christ and join the family for real. Receive the eternal life and forgiveness of sins that you've heard promised to you week in and week out. Receive a new life that begins now. Don't live in your self-deception. But for application for the Christian, I have two things for you. Christian, in light of the words of our Lord in this text, I must ask you this. I already know the answer. Is there an area of your life that you are refusing to submit to the will of God? The answer is yes. For all of us. Especially me. Because I know me better than I know you. Is there an area of your life where you are refusing to submit to the will of God? 
Is there an area of your life where you are clinging to your own will instead of gladly submitting to and doing the will of God out of love for him? And I'm going to take a few minutes. I'm going to give you some examples. In your marriage, are you submitting your marriage to the word of God? I know that not all of you are because I know you. Because you've come to me and talked to me. We're, we're counseling. But for all of us, do you submit your marriage to the word of God? Husband, are you actively trying to fulfill your role as a husband to lay yourself down sacrificially and in love for your wife? And wives, are you actively striving to respect your husband and be submissive to him and show him kindness? Are you living in bitterness and unforgiveness towards your spouse? What are you doing with your marriage? Are you submitting it to the will of God? Are you submitting your anger to the will of God? Forgiving those who have offended you, blessing your enemies, praying for those who persecute you, actively striving to do good for the person that you know can't stand you that you're angry with? Are you bottling it up and rebelling against the Lord your God? Are you submitting your anger to God? And working on forgiveness and reconciliation. Are you submitting your finances to God? I'm not a prosperity preacher, but let's face it, greed is a real problem for most of us. Where you know you could be more generous with your church or with other ministries outside of this church. Or to just your brother or sister sitting in the pew next to you because you know they're in need and you have an abundance. But you just hold on to what you have. And you refuse to submit to the will of God that you would be generous. That it's better to give than receive as our Lord says. Are you not submitting to the will of God with your time? God, help us in America with this. That you would waste your time on things that don't matter and entertain yourselves to death and not devote yourself to prayer. I'm not saying that it's a sin to watch Netflix or to play video games or board games or that stuff. But you do that stuff at the expense of knowing the word of God and at the expense of fellowship with your fellow Christian and at the expense of prayer and at the expense of making yourself useful to God. And you won't submit your time because it's your time. Are you not submitting raising your children to the will of God? Where you, you won't put forth godly, biblical rules in your home because it's difficult. And you won't discipline your children because it's difficult. And you refuse to submit to the will of God in your child ring. Or maybe you're too harsh with your children. And you refuse to teach them grace. Or maybe you, don't, you care nothing to catechize your children, to read the word with them, to pray with them, to preach the gospel to them. Because it's awkward and it's difficult and it takes effort, but you refuse to submit to God in that. There are many other things that we could talk about. But is there an area of your life that you're refusing to submit to the will of God? Are you living in open rebellion to the Lord in any way? Christian, if that's just you, then repent it's God's will that you repent of your rebellion and submit to Him. So do the will of God. Do it now, in your heart now. Repent. And then as you leave here this evening, seek to reform your life. And in the words of Pastor Steve Lawson, do it today. Undertake the work today. Tomorrow is the devil's day. Today is God's day. Do it today. Christian, you're a member of the, you're a member of the family. Children, submit to your father. He's been too kind to you and too gracious to you to love you and forgive you, and you rebel. And then lastly, I want to end with this. Be encouraged, Christian. 
Be encouraged. As challenging as this text is, as harsh as this text can come across through our hearts, it also gives us much hope. As I said earlier, Jesus does not say that it is only those who do the will of God perfectly who are his family. How awful would that be? How grim would that be? We would have no hope because we're sinners. No one would be saved if that were the case. But no, Jesus is saying those who strive to do the will of God are my family. Like he can't have meant perfect obedience results in our being part of the family. Look who's sitting around him that day. His disciples. Peter was there. Who would deny him? The other ten, again, we're not counting Judas here. The other ten were there who would abandon him in his greatest hour of need. You can read the Gospels, and in multiple accounts, you can see Jesus' disciples sinning and not getting it right and not doing the will of God, and Jesus calling them to repentance. They're not obeying God perfectly. But here, very on, very early on in Jesus' ministry, he says, this is my family. This is my family. He's not saying that perfect obedience results in your status as a family member. So weak and weary Christian, especially those, I know some of you wrestle with the assurance of salvation. Know this, if you trust Christ and you strive to obey God and you repent when you sin, you have a divine right. You are entitled to the assurance of salvation. You are entitled to the right to know that you belong to the family of God, not by your obedience, not by anything that you do, but by the unmerited and free grace of God found in Christ, not in your clean living, but by Christ who has paid for your sins, not by your obedience, but by Christ who is your righteousness. So be encouraged. And rejoice in him. He is the atonement for your sin. He is your righteousness. He is your everything. And you ought to know that you belong to him by faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenges that you give us. That, that you use texts like this to bring your people to repentance. To reveal uh, in, in the heart of the falsely converted that they actually need to repent and believe upon Christ for the first time savingly. God, thank you for what texts like this do, but also, God, thank you that this passage does not teach us salvation by obedience. We are saved by works, Lord, but we're saved through the works of your Son. That's why the first principle is that we believe in him. God, we thank you. God, increase our faith. Increase our obedience. Increase our love for you as we really think on what it is that Christ has done for us. And grant us repentance, God, when we fail. Thank you for being so patient with us and never giving up on us, but being a faithful covenant redeemer to your people. Please work in us, God, that we might be a holy people who submit to you out of love. I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.